Welcome to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast. My name is Raymond Pryor. I'm a performance consultant. My areas of expertise are performance psychology, performance neuroscience, and sleep science. And with me is my good friend and co-host, PJ Tour instructor and golf instructor extraordinaire, Chase Cooper. How are you, my friend? Doc, what is happening? Yeah, not too much. As we are recording it today, I think they call it golf's hardest day. Uh, as we're recording that, so it's been a busy day, um, but a perfect day to perhaps talk about stable confidence, which is what we teased in our last episode. Absolutely. Well, you know, we talked about stress and you educated me on stress. We hadn't really talked much about that in a lot of our discussions. And, you know, obviously a stressful day today. You know, it doesn't get any harder than 36 straight holes, lots of PGA Tour players in the field. And, you know, I played in a couple of sectional qualifiers and Missed one by a shot or two. And it was actually the year that Steve Elkington threw a fit about spikes down here in Houston, if you remember right. And, you know, it's just a grind. The USGA sets these golf courses up so tough. And, you know, I looked at some of the some of the scores and, you know, two or three under look like it's going to get in. And, you know, that's, a, that's, that's pretty intense for the quality of the fields. But, Doc, I'm going to keep asking you to give us some tidbits on, you know, how you get into the minds of your players, you know, how do you walk them through, you know, the day before an event or even a morning call before the event? What's that, you know, what's that conversation look like? Like what's some quick little, I don't know, antidote that you'll sometimes give your players on days like this? Yeah, I try to steer away from the antidotes. I'm not really into the quick fixes or hacks or um, tips. Those tend to be as fragile. They come as quick as they go. Um what we're really talking about is perhaps reminding a couple of people or reestablishing some roots in what stable confidence is all about. Um, as we alluded to in our last episode, stable confidence is self-given permission to perform freely without a guarantee. And it's when we let go of this need for a guarantee that all of a sudden, or perhaps gradually, uh, anxiety starts to become less of a default response for us as re in a response to stress. And by the way, playing in the U.S. Open qualifier at any stage or playing in the U.S. Open itself is stressful. Again, stress is intensity and duration of demand upon us. And these are very demanding rounds of golf, especially so the intensity is really high and the duration is also high because you got to play 36 holes in a day to get through. So, um, Staying away from tips and hacks and uh, cliches and pithy phrases and really getting back to what does it take, what is it required for you to be able to play freely today? And what that requires is the two most, the two only required psychological elements to play with stable confidence, and that is groundedness and acceptance. Come on, Doc. I'm trying to get you to give in to what your industry and my industry have, have done forever, which is, you know, these quick tips, you know, something simple. And I say something simple jokingly, obviously, but, you know, I think groundedness and what we've been referring to uh, for a while as, you know, being on time and being present and acceptance is, is to me as simple as it gets, even though it's really challenging. You know, I've likened, you know, I continue to liken what you teach to more of a systematic approach to, to you know, what we've defined as stable confidence. And, and to me, it's still the only way to tap into our athleticism, to be free, to give ourselves permission. And I love telling my players to, to give themselves permission to explore. You know, I love the old saying, we don't really fail, we learn. And that's what I love telling my players. So let's get into it. What is groundedness? And why do we, you know, or on time, and why do we need to be on time to perform at our best? Sure. Uh, before we get there, so if we're just take, talking about stable confidence, let's also use an analogy that people might understand, particularly those interested in golf and the golf swing. As an instructor, Chase, if I said the word to you, a stable club club face or the phrase stable club face, what would you, how would you describe that? What would you think of? Yeah, I mean, the word I hate the most in golf instruction is consistency, but, but it's more, a more consistent club face. It's not rapidly changing all the time. And you know, unfortunately, the club is moving all over the place, and it's why you and I choked last week at how hard this game is and, you know, why it's so difficult. But, yeah, it's just uh, more consistent and uh, and more dependable. Yeah, and so you might say it is less impacted or there's less variability involved, you might say, right? And what might you expect to see? It? Let's say you have two different players with similar swings. One has a really stable club face and one – 
instable, meaning it's moving a lot, opening and closing, or perhaps changing positions uh, along the golf swing. What might you expect to see from two players like that in terms of what their ball flight and ball striking might be? Yeah, stable club face players just going to have more predictable curves, going to have more predictable start lines, you know, so they're going to, they're going to start it where they want to more often. They're going to be able to consistently replicate the curve that matches their intention. Unstable face player is going to be one of those players that's, uh, you know, good on the range, could be good at times, even the, you know, first couple of, of holes in a tournament, first couple of rounds in a tournament. But when it gets down to the last couple of holes, last, you know, last round, nerves get kicked up, stress gets kicked up, um, you know, even if they have what we're going to define in this episode as stable confidence, when, you know, the gun goes off, the nerves get kicked up, the speed gets kicked up, and they're just going to have a harder time controlling those start lines and controlling the curves. So perhaps as the stress increases, the variability within their club face also increases, hence the instability of the club face, and then also what you might expect is they are less consistent under pressure and less consistent over time. And we also might expect that they are less consistent as conditions change. Right. So if your club face is unstable, the number of lies and stances that you're going to have uh, a high probability of executing a functional golf shot will decrease, not increase. Is that a fair kind of analogy of what we're working on here? Yeah, 1000 percent, you know, quite down the range, flat, flat range with good lies. And, you know, you're letting them hit seven iron over and over and over again. A lot of practice and, and, and a lot of them will look really, really good. But then you put them in unique situations. You put them in different lies. You put them in um, stressful situations, bump the stress up a little bit. And, and the nerves get kicked up a little bit and it can become really, really tricky. Right. So I think that's an apt analogy when we're talking about confidence as well, where I wouldn't say that unstable confidence is a bad thing, but the bottom line is that the number of conditions needed for us to be able to execute are fewer, not many. They, uh, when pressure is increased, the stability of our confidence is exposed. So the less stable your confidence is, the more under pressure, you're going to have a more difficult time playing freely. So we might think of stability of confidence like that of a club face. Now, can you play well and hit good shots having unstable confidence? Sure. In the same way that, yes, you can hit a functional golf shot and perhaps string a couple together and maybe a couple of difficult conditions with an unstable club face or a less stable club face. But the bottom line is nobody's trying to have an unstable club face and nobody's trying to have unstable confidence because we know for sure that the amount of conditions and under pressure, they become less stable, not more stable. Okay. So I don't want um, people to think that it's necessarily a bad thing, but at the same time, like the more stable your confidence is like having a more stable club face your margin for error to be able to perform in and the amount of conditions and under pressure being one of those conditions becomes wider, not more narrow. And so oftentimes when people think about confidence, I think oftentimes we get stuck in kind of these outdated uh, models that are fundamentally flawed, which is like the trust, certainty, self-belief type of models where if I just trust that an outcome is going to go a certain way, or if I'm super certain that I'm going to play well, or if I just believe in myself that I'm the very best, that will then give me permission to perform freely. And to be very clear, those can be forms of confidence. There's no doubt about that, that that can be a powerful place for us. And there are times when we feel that trust and certainty or that level of self-belief. However, the amount of conditions that those are credibly available to us are few and far between, particularly as we make our way up the learning curve and we're competing in more difficult and more competitive situations. There's no player today who is in, hard, in golf's hardest day competing in U.S. Open qualifiers who can credibly look down the range or at the leaderboard and go, I am the best player here, except for maybe one or two guys, in which case then also that projection may or may not be correct. Right. So the bottom line is if we're feeling a sense of trust or a sense of certainty or this self-belief, that is not necessarily a bad thing. However, like flipping your hands at the golf club with a face with a ton of rotation on it that's super unstable, the amount of conditions where you can get away with that and how reliable that is for you, hence the instability, are fewer and farther between, not, not more stable. Hey, you got a little adamant there, Doc. 
got a little lively on that one is, uh, you know, the stable confidence versus, you know, the old school trust and believing in oneself and all that stuff. Is that one of the fallacies in your industry that, you know, kind of gets under your skin a little bit? I wouldn't say it gets under my skin. It, um, it is a grossly outdated model and it's fundamentally flawed because it causes us to rely on things that may or may not be available to us. Number one. And number two, it becomes a trap loop for us going, well, I must have that in order to perform well, which they're not. Look, self-belief, if you just feel like I'm the best player in the world and I'm destined to win majors, there's nothing wrong with that. But it is not required for success. The amount of times that people have gone, well, I just knew I was going to middle major and I believed in it. For every one of those, there are five people who go, you know, I never knew that I could win a major, but I just played really freely for a couple of days in a row and boom, here we go. And the vast majority of time, and you'll know this as an instructor, Chase, when your players go, I played really well, oftentimes they have let go of the need for trust and certainty and comfort and all these things that we typically associate with confidence for one reason or another. Either they have learned to let go of it on their own internally, or the external circumstances have kind of pushed them into that situation in an unavoidable way, which again, nothing wrong with. The downside is you're reliant upon external sources to create an internal state. So I'm a little bit adamant in that if performance psychology professionals or performance psychologists are pushing people toward trust, certainty, comfort, self-belief, et cetera, we're in many ways coaching people toward helplessness because the question becomes, what are you going to do when those things aren't available to you? And the bottom line is, as we talked about with stressful situations, they are designed to be demanding, which often means they are uncomfortable and uncertain Two. They are designed to create a stress response in us, which can tip into anxiety, which again becomes more uncertainty for us. And if we're not willing to let uncertainty unfold, our confidence is going to be unstable. And the bottom line is that self-belief is also just a set of expectations and projections of the future that may or may not happen. And so if I'm going into a high stress situation where those aren't available to me, but I've created my confidence upon them, or perhaps something like past results, Past results are great. If you have a history of past results and success, wonderful. But what if you haven't played well in a while or produced results in a while, which even the best golfers in the world go through times where they're just not playing very well and not producing very good results. So then the question becomes, well, what do I build my confidence off of then? And what happens is if we're relying on these types of things, essentially what happens is we have this extended checklist to go, well, for me to give myself permission to perform freely today, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. Then again, the question becomes, well, what if those aren't available to you? What if you haven't played well in a month? You don't feel a ton of trust in what it is that you're doing because you have no reason to. You're uncomfortable, you're uncertain, and your self-belief is minimal or none. Then how are you going to go play well when the situation basically commands it? Like today, you got you have to do it today or, or else you got to wait another year, essentially, right? And so I'm adamant that this model is outdated and it's fundamentally flawed because it's relying on things that one, aren't required, and two, not always available to us. Man, Doc, all I'm going to say is I am uh, I am glad we're recording this. There was some really, really good stuff there. And, and again, as always, I wrote down a bunch of stuff. You know, you've completely convinced me on the fact that we cannot trick our brains. We just can't. And, you know, we, you and I have talked about the, the yips a lot, and I've got a lot of players that I've worked with with the yips. And I used to tell players all the time, you, you know, with putting yips, you got to change your grip. And I'm not talking about like putting a different golf pride grip on there, but you got to change your grip style, how you hold the club. And, you know, for some, it would work for short periods of time. We have a, a player we've talked about that we both have, have helped. You've helped, helped me with, with, with them a few times. And, you know, that grip change will work over a shorter or possibly even an extended period of time, but it tends to always come back. And I think it's, again, the yips isn't a, um, it can't be cured by just tricking our brain into doing something else. It ends up being a deeper issue that's an acceptance issue or, or you know, whatever the case may be. But the other thing I think you touched on is, is how outside circumstances can almost force us to let go and, 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 raise our acceptance levels, lower expectations and raise our acceptance levels. And that makes me think of how many times I did this as a junior and, you know, we'll get off to horrible starts and in tournaments and then play the last nine holes, a couple under, or even shoot like, you know, 82, 71, 68. And, you know, parents are always like, well, why can't they do that all the time? And I'm like, because, you know, really they don't have stable confidence and, you know, or they're not on time and the, 
the the first round or the first couple holes and you know they're confident if they get off to a good start or if they hit it great in the first round you know and if they if they make that putt on the first hole whatever it is yeah you hit the nail on the head there so first of all you talked about using the word if like if i feel comfortable if i had made a few putts in the first putts in the first few holes what you're talking about there when we have all this laundry list of requirements for us to be able to give ourselves permission to play freely that may or may not be available to us is we have this very conditional relationship with our confidence and those conditions can't be met all the time. So again, the question becomes, what do you do when those conditions aren't met? And if the answer is, well, now I don't have any more confidence, what you're waiting for also, as you alluded to, is the thing that I've been trying to resist the whole time actually happens, like I play a terrible front nine. And then because it's actually happened, I accept the fact that it's happened because I can't deny it anymore. Again, I can't trick my brain into pretending I didn't play a terrible front nine if I did. And because now I have accepted the thing that I have been trying to avoid, my level of acceptance skyrockets. We would call this situational acceptance, in which case the situation has created uh, conditions where I can't deny the things that I've been trying to deny anymore, whether that's the fact that I'm having a terrible day or perhaps I'm not the best player in the field, et cetera. And then our level of acceptance skyrockets. So we become open to more of the outcomes that we don't like and more of the experiences that we don't like. And then when that happens, we have more access to being in the present moment. Surprise, surprise, we tend to play more freely. The opposite happens, though. If you're playing a great front nine, maybe you're five under through nine or whatever that might be relative to your handicap, and you go, uh-oh, do not screw this up, which is just another way of... It's not that you thought negatively. Again, our brain doesn't really think in positive or negative. It thinks in pursuit and avoidance. When our level of acceptance is lower, avoidance becomes more prioritized than pursuit. That's just how our brain operates. Again, like you said, you can't trick it into not avoiding the things that you're telling it must be avoided. And so if I play a great front nine, I see that I'm way under my handicap and I go, "Uh oh, don't screw this up, because if you do, that whole front nine is an absolute fluke. What that's that's not a negative thought. What it is, is an avoidance face thought that brings our level of acceptance way down. And then now all of a sudden you're trying to avoid screwing up your front nine as you're playing your back nine. And it's not that it's negative. Your confidence is destabilized because you have now asked your brain to multitask with avoidance of screwing up something that already exists and pursuing what you want, which is to go see how low of a score you can shoot that day. And again, when you give your brain the task, avoid this and go pursue this, you cannot trick it into pursuing what it want, what you want to pursue if you have also given it a task to avoid because, again, it is designed to prioritize avoidance first. Here we see why acceptance of all outcomes and all possible experiences, especially the ones we don't like, is what ultimately stabilizes our confidence and allows us to be present more often because it takes multitasking off the table. And the reason acceptance is also so powerful for us is that we can bring it anytime we want. It's not always easy, but it is always available to us. If you're on the first tee and you're willing to accept the fact that the ball might go out of bounds on your first shot, that is always available to you. Going, I need to be certain that this ball is not going to go out of bounds on the first tee, not available to you. Or perhaps an internal situation might be, if I'm willing to accept the fact that I'm going to be feeling nervous about this first tee shot, and instead of telling myself, you better not be nervous and you better not ever have negative thoughts, which again, is just an avoidance-based task, meaning a low level of acceptance, that's not now I, that's not available to me. As soon as I have the thought, please don't hit it left. And so if instead I'm willing to accept some of my thoughts in that way and accept those possible outcomes, my brain doesn't feel the need to multitask with them as much. Hence, we have the opportunity to actually be present and go, what do I want to do right now and how do I want to do that? And that is what stable confidence is, what is what stable confidence allows us to do. Self-given permission to perform freely without a guarantee. Doc, how do we... You know, golf's such a unique sport, right? Because there's so much technique involved to hit good golf shots. How is the brain designed to stay on time when we're trying to focus on, say, a, a mechanical thought to hit a good golf shot? You know, you've said it. We've talked about it. We as humans don't multitask very well, very well at all. We're actually quite horrible at it. Well, it depends on what kind of tasks we have. So to be clear, humans can multitask, and we do. Like right now, you're sitting and you're listening, and soon you'll be sitting and speaking. 
But when we're talking about tasks that require a significant amount of skill, precision, and attention in order to do them successfully, I mean, golf is, I mean, the, the sweet spot on the golf club is about the size of a dime. And that's assuming you deliver it with the right ratio of face to path and the right low point, right? This again, so think about an example in our real lives. It's like texting and driving. Like texting's not difficult. Driving's not super difficult once you get a few miles under your belt. But because our attention is jumping back and forth between these two tasks, and both of them require some level of skill, particularly driving, this is why it's illegal to text and drive because multitasking makes us worse at both. And the consequences of texting and driving usually end up to be very dangerous on the road. For us on the golf course, it's not a life and death situation. But the bottom line is if you're trying to thrive at something with such small actual margins for error, multitasking with avoidance makes it really difficult to be able to do that. And by the way, it also makes it less enjoyable. One of the things about multitasking for us as human beings is our brain likes to be focused intently on something, at least for some portions of time. Right. If you think about the things you the the experiences of our lives that we enjoy the most, that movie we were into, the time we were on a date with our significant other and we are just present with it, or the uh, even if you thought about your best round of golf, we are engaged with it as it's happening and as it's playing out. Being grounded in the present moment, you asked it earlier, like what is it that causes our brain to be able to execute more freely there? It is a state of norepinephrine, which is a bit of adrenaline, and being present basically means I'm running on dopamine. Dopamine is the neuro uh, neuromodulator of pursuit. Like our brain wants us to pursue the things that we are focused on as they are happening. So when we're multitasking, not only is our confidence become unstable, but the thing we're doing becomes less enjoyable because it doesn't really know what to pair our dopaminergic system to. Hence why being distracted is not the most enjoyable state for us in something where being really actually focused on what we're doing in order to be successful is somewhat required. Now, again, focusing on the present moment is difficult for us at times, but the present moment that the one we're actually physically living in at any moment is always accessible to us. Hence why it's a much more stable source of confidence for us than something like trust, self-belief, certainty, positive thinking, or trying to distract ourselves from our actual experience or the things that are actually happening for us. You know, Doc, do you think that juniors have a little bit harder time staying on time than, you know, they're, uh, they have a bit of a childlike faith in their abilities where they're, you know, people that are our age will have, will tend to have more acceptance issues just because they've got, they've got more scars. Yeah, the world is a bit of a, a blank canvas-ish for them still. So their level of acceptance and expectations are still being defined. Yeah. So then with the phone and with all this, these distractions that we're dealing with and, you know, with juniors' attention spans or, or yeah. you know, young people's attention spans being lower than they've ever been, you know, do you think that their, you know, their struggle with on time is as difficult for their generation as it's ever been? Yes, but to be clear, it's difficult for every more every generation now more than ever. We live in a world of abundance right now. The vast majority of us live in a world of abundance where not only are there things that can uh, pull our attention away, but we choose to engage with them, something like a cell phone, for example. Now, again, these are tools. Like I would never tell anybody, get rid of your cell phone. Because if you told me to get rid of my cell phone, I would tell you, go where you can stick it because I need that for my life. We live in a life now where if you don't have a digital device, life is difficult to navigate. Having said that, if we are constantly jumping our attention back and forth, it could be a digital device. It could be I'm hitting balls, but I'm really talking with somebody else and I'm doing this in kind of an ongoing way. Or perhaps the distraction techniques that you're talking about where Perhaps I'm feeling some anxiety, and so I'm going to use a distraction technique to try to distract me from my anxiety, which will give me some room to be able to operate. All of those things, again, in the short term, maybe not so harmful, but over time, the downside for them is that they are in no uncertain terms training us not to be able to filter out irrelevancy. And if you want to destabilize confidence, be focused on a lot of things that are not relevant to your performance. And the bottom line is any stressful performance realm including playing golf, even a casual round of golf, has irrelevancy around it constantly. 
It's either past events, future events, or things in our immediate environment that could draw our focus, but don't have anything to do with the task at hand. And I got to say, there's a ton of research coming out right now about people who are high, who are really high resilience, meaning in stressful environments, they tend to outperform people consistently. They know how to filter out what's relevant and what's not. And the bottom line is any golf shot you've already hit, any golf shot you haven't hit yet compared to the one that you have right now and a variety of other things around golf, most of them are not relevant with, to the task at hand, which is golf balls here, get it as close to your target as you can and see what happens. So back to the on time and the, and the multitasking, you know, there's been a, a ton of people from sports psychologists to coaches to, you know, really good players that have talked about how, you know, you have to see the shot in your mind. Visually, you've got you've to see it yeah. in your pre-shot routine. You know, you've got to have all these cues that are needed to, to get ready to hit good golf shots. And as always, I'm, you know, fascinated by what the science says. Um, you know, is it a different type of learner's thing or some more visual learners? You know, do you have to be more visual learner to, to have more success seeing it? If you're not a visual learner, are you going to struggle seeing, seeing a shot visually, visually, you know? You know, Hal and I last year talked to Tom Watson, and Watson said he hit it terrible the first two days. You know, going back to the U.S. Open with the, the chip in at, at Pebble, but he hit it terrible the first two days, and found a swing thought on the range on uh, on Saturday before the third round, and and uh, used that swing thought the rest of the next few days and, and hit it great. Yeah. And so, you know, can we yeah. be on time while we're having you know call it a technical thought? A swing, a, we'll just say swing thought as a general term. Yeah. And the answer, yeah, the answer is yes. And undoubtedly, there's enough anecdotal evidence from really, really good players. I would say one out of 10 players on the PJ and LPJ tour are legitimately just point and shoot thought type process. Most of them have some type of physical or technique thought that they have as part of their swing, their chipping, and their putting as well. It's, a, it's really something technical and some more than others. Here's the clear dividing line between the two that the research shows us when we have a swing thought that is related to the shot we want to pursue and how we want to execute it it can be really valuable for us it kind of helps simplify what it is that we want to do and how we want to do it which again really important for pursuit what do you want to pursue and how do you want to pursue it when we use swing thoughts or we might just say mechanical thinking in a variety of different sports but certainly including golf to create certainty and comfort, that's when it becomes overthinking because there's no amount of technical thinking that can create certainty of outcome or comfort. And so if I'm trying to do that, typically what happens is a little bit of overthinking doesn't do it. And then I'm going to start thinking a little bit more because if a little bit of overthinking didn't do it, a whole bunch more might do it. And that certainly doesn't do it. And then what happens is not as only is there an overabundance of technical thinking, but I tend to jump from thing to thing to thing going, where's the certainty? Where's the comfort? Where's the guaranteed outcome? And because our thoughts cannot create a guaranteed outcome, nor any golf swing, regardless of how stable your club face is, that can actually guarantee an outcome on every single shot, thinking swing thoughts for that purpose, meaning creating comfort or certainty, or we might even say trying to create confidence, not helpful. If I have a simple swing thought that helps me to physically execute my skills in real time for the purpose of getting this ball from where it is to as close as I want it to be, but without a guarantee, then those swing thoughts can indeed be very valuable, which is why the best players in the world typically have some style of a swing thought, some type of a sensation that they're trying to gravitate toward that helps them execute their skills. I mean, there's too many stories like uh, Tom Watson, finding a feeling on the range. I think there was a story about Ben Crenshaw, like the year he won the Masters the second time where he's on the range, like hadn't hit it straight all week. There's like a ball position thing and like a, a feel that he had in his swing where he was basically like shortening his motion, whether he was actually shortening it or that's what he was thinking about. Those happen all the time. What I'm always encouraging my players to pay attention to is what are you using your swing thoughts for? Are you using it to benefit your swing or are you using it to benefit how you feel about outcomes? Because the latter leads to overthinking and typically it starts to be far more disruptive and distracting than helpful. Doc, I'm still so fascinated about, you know, going into the shot. You know, we set up to the shot, we're on time, you know, we're grounded. 
um, or where our feet are. And, you know, I use that analogy a lot with my players. I'm like, look, it's two o'clock right now. You've got to be at two o'clock, not 205, not 155, not, not tomorrow, not, not 201. And, you know, but, but, you know, the research and back to the visualiz visualization and all that stuff. Cause, you know, I think good players listening to this and, you know, even your 20 handicappers listen to this, you know, you've played good golf, you've, you know, had some success visualizing, visualizing the shot, seeing the shot. You know, I've even heard people talking about your, you know, seeing it in your mind's eye, but you've also had some success with a mechanical thought and you've also struggled with mechanical thought. You know, would you prefer that your players get into this, the, the visualization where they're, they're over the ball and not having a swing thought or, you know, they're, they've got it completely locked the, the targets completely locked in their head from a, from a visual standpoint. And they're just trying to react to the shot that they see, you know, in their mind, because I keep thinking back to, you know, when, um, you know, time when I felt like, you know, my brain was in two different spots. I was trying to hit the shot, but I was also, my brain was at the target or I was, had a swing thought, but then I was trying to hit a target. And, um, and I just don't know if at times that's the most optimal way, optimal, optimal way to do it. But, you know, I'm, I'm curious again, what the, you know, what the research says. So the research shows us that we can move back and forth between these two places. And some people have a preference for one or the other. The question isn't which one do I like more or which one do I prefer? It's which one works better for you and when is it working better for you? So every now and then a player will tell me, you know, my swing just feels amazing. I feel like I can't miss. And all I got to do is see a shot. Either I'm visualizing it before I step into it or maybe I'm talking through it either to myself or to a caddy or whatever or just out loud to myself. And what that does is it clarifies what it is that you're trying to pursue. Again, what am I trying to pursue and how am I trying to hit it there? So if I'm trying to pursue, you know, this finishing spot, you can hit different shapes to it, but which one am I seeing and which one? And what that does is it clarifies intention, which how people get to that can vary. But if you're hitting a golf shot and you're, you haven't really clarified your intention, again, you're asking your brain to do something that you haven't really told it. What is it that you want me to actually do? In which case, then the more clear we can be on what it is that we're doing before we even step into a shot. That's great, right? We don't need to have it actually exact like the, you know, the blade of grass down the fairway, but the bottom line is going, I'm going to start this ball on this target line and I'm going to try to finish it here, or I'm going to try to land this ball here. I want to see it check or not check, etc. Super helpful because it clarifies what it is that we're trying to pursue. So what it does is it takes that task and it really crystallizes it and makes it crisp and clear in our mind. Hence the importance of, you know, precise game plan and on time, on target. On time and on target. Or I might say on time and on task. Just depends on, you know, kind of the language of the player. One of the reasons I use on time and on target is because, for example, we know when it comes to putting, target is king. Thinking about mechanics and putting is because it's such a precision stroke relative to a longer shot, like a, even a half wedge or a full swing. Um, when we get involved with more than the target it starts to disrupt our our stroke so oftentimes in putting it's really about can i see my line whatever and whether my target is an intermediate target a farther target or the hole itself depending on what kind of putt we have we know for sure that once it's over the putt and we're actually looking at the golf ball it's really kind of about holding the target in your mind and then go with your stroke because putting is such a i hate to say it this way it's not the most athletic move that's required in order to be successful. It's really, can I keep the, the putter face relatively stable with the correct amount of speed? And it is pretty remarkable. The research shows that when we have target in mind, those two things kind of take care of themselves, provided we have kind of, we're the general ideas we're trying to make a putt or get it as close as we can. Right. So, but then by the way, having some type of technical thought, I wouldn't recommend having many because again, you're just asking your brain to think about too many things at one time. But if you're going, hey, I'm going to start this ball here. I'm going to finish it here from you know 150 out. And then you step into your shot and like, this is what I feel to hit a draw or this is what I feel for a fade. There's just too many anecdotal evidence and too much research to show us that that can be really valuable for people. Again, with the caveat, am I using that to just execute this shot with a willingness to see what happens outcome wise rather than, well, what's the feeling I need to generate to guarantee the ball goes where I want it to because that doesn't exist for us. What are your thoughts on a stock range swing 
you know, sometimes I refer to it as brain dead, obviously not technically brain dead, but I'll say, hey, you know, give me your brain dead stock range swing. It's just a good solid, you know, nothing special range swing seven iron. Yeah, I think it's just really important to clarify the different shots that you have. And again, it, it's relative to your skill level. You know, if, if you're a high handicap player, my guess is based on your handicap, the best chance of you scoring well is hitting as many stock shots as possible just because there's less variability involved. And as you get more skilled, you can add more nuance and variations to that. You know, So if you're a pro golfer, you know, and you're a yard, like most of them have roughly 15-ish yards between each club. And that's kind of a lot of space when you're talking about how precise they are, particularly inside of like, let's say 150, 120 yards. And so they might have a feeling where they go, okay, this is just a stock eight iron. And then there also might be like, it's a knockdown or it's a half, you know, and oftentimes what happens is that there's a little bit of a very, we, you know, if we're looking at like the actual biomechanical information objectively, when you ask a player to hit a half shot, they typically do two things. Either their motion shortens a little bit or their swing speed decreases slightly or some combination thereof. But again, if you're clarifying that and that's within your skill set and you're not multitasking with anything else, outstanding. But again, it's about the clarity beforehand that can help us. And then again, if we are actually on time and on target with that, that's what helps pave the way for us to being able to execute really good shots. Let's go back to acceptance now. So you've talked about the brain. You know, it either wants to pursue something or it wants to avoid something. And so I'm I'm super interested in, you know, yeah. a couple of things with regards to, you know, this acceptance in golf. And, you know, Doc, what do we do when, um, you know, we, when we can't accept the outcome or a couple of different outcomes? And then also I'd like for you to talk about how, you know, some of your toughest clients, you know, you mentioned we played golf together last year and you said some of your toughest clients were, were doctors and, you know, they're trying to fa- pass their final their final big test, the the boards or whatever they call it. And I said something like, you know, do they know the information? And you're like, oh yeah, they, they know the information really well. They're, they're great doctors, but they're, you know, just, you know, not great test takers. And if they fail this test, they may have to go back to school for, you know, who knows how long. And, you know, yeah. you, you don't have to go into super detail on this, but, um, you know, for them, it's almost impossible for their acceptance to be high if they fail this test and, and, and screw up. And, so when we get into these super tough to accept situations, how do we proceed? Yeah, well, I'll just reiterate our definition of acceptance, starting with what it's not, which is it doesn't mean you don't care about the outcome. It also doesn't mean that you're going to like the outcome and that it's going to be an easy one to swallow. It doesn't mean that you're settling for, for less and resigning yourself to, well, this is just it forever. That's not it. It doesn't mean you're comfortable and it doesn't mean you're certain. The bare bones of acceptance chases there are negative outcomes there in front of us by what what we define as negative outcomes, ones that we don't want. And regardless of how much we are willing or not willing to accept them, when they happen, we have to live with them. And so if we preload that acceptance, which basically means I'm going to take this test as best I can, I'm going to hit this shot as best I can, I'm going to play as well as I can in a situation where it is really difficult for me to let go of the possibility of a negative outcome, that's what frees you up. Again, that's the only always accessible way for us to eliminate or minimize multitasking. Because regardless of how skilled you are, if you're going into a situation where the actual margin for error is really narrow, meaning you have to execute and be successful today, otherwise you got to backtrack a bunch. And that's what the actual rules of golf or medicine or whatever say. Bottom line is if that happens, you have to deal with it. So it doesn't matter how much we really want or don't want outcomes to happen or how much we're trying to resist or how much we're trying to accept. And the bottom line is they are always a risk. And when we have a really low level of acceptance, what we start to see in people are a pattern in three ways. The first pattern is it's really difficult for them to be present, particularly when the outcomes that are most important to them are at stake. And the reason is If I'm not willing to accept those in the future, I am going to be distracted by the possibility of them working out or not working out. Here again, we see why distraction. Essentially what happens is, even though that outcome is really important to you, when you're actually performing, it's not relevant. What's relevant is the task in front of you, which if you're taking your boards as a doctor, it's the practical exam or it's the written exam. If you're playing golf, it's the shot in front of you. It's not signing your scorecard at the end. 
The second thing we start to see is that people have really inconsistent effort. And the reason is because if I'm unwilling to accept certain outcomes in the future, it's real. I'm always doing this guess and check and kind of this return on investment type of analysis in my brain as like, is it worth it for me to stay engaged and invested in this? And then, uh oh, it looks like it's not going so well. Like, and then my effort dips and then like, oh, maybe I had a little bit of success for a couple of holes or I came back and maybe it's worth it. And so it's always this like math equation about like, is this going to work out the way that I want to? And as soon as our brain starts to calculate, mm, I don't think so. It's super easy for us to go like, yeah, you, I don't know. I can just bail out. And by bail out, like I'm here, but I'm not here. In psychology, we call this stay and quit. We're like, we're in it physically, but we're not really in it. We're not giving it. And every single college coach out there listening to this is shaking their head because they have players that are super invested in the outcome, but so much so, and their level of acceptance for negative outcomes is also so low that as soon as things start to get hard for them, especially when the outcomes that are most important to them are at stake, they bail out really quick. And you know, those are the types of players that coaches go, crazy amount of talent, you know, quote unquote, super high potential players, but I don't know if I can rely on them when things get really hard. Right. And the third pattern we see is when we are unwilling to accept negative outcomes in the future, or perhaps what we might clarify as discomfort or uncertainty is that we become averse risk averse. Like we won't take calculated risks. And I'm not talking about reckless risks. Like well, I'll just bubble in the test and just see what happens, right? Or I'll go out drinking the night before because I'm sure it will be fine and work itself out. Or when we're playing golf, that doesn't mean you're cutting every corner and firing at every flag. What it means is, though, is at certain point, like, I've got to take a stand. i got to draw a line in the sand and say, this is where I'm going to try to really separate myself from the field. Or this is where I'm going to actually be engaged with this and risk the possibility of a mistake or failure because that's what gives me the best chance of the success that I want. So... The bottom line is if our confidence isn't stable enough, we become averse to calculated risk. And, you know, there was a time I know when we were uh, doing a podcast with Hal Sutton where I was kind of detailing this a little bit and it really resonated with Hal because he was on the tour for so long. And he's like, Raymond, I've seen so many players that I was like, you are so good. But when it came time to like fire at the, a flag instead of necessarily the middle of the green or to play a shot with a little bit higher of a strategic risk involved, they weren't willing to do it. And the bottom line is that's kind of death by a thousand cuts over time. And under pressure, the bottom line is like, we have to be willing to try and possibly fail if we're going to execute freely and have the best chance of success. And so as much as I would love to tell you, hey, when you really feel like you can't accept the outcomes, like here's how you resist them from happening. But based on how our brain is designed, the pattern of what we see behaviorally is super predictable. And again, every college coach or every youth coach and perhaps most swing coaches listening to this are shaking their heads going, yeah, I've seen that time and time again with certain players. And that is a that is a those are behavioral patterns that we see that are a reflection of unstable confidence where I'm relying on either my feeling about future outcomes going the way that I want to or. I'm relying on trust, certainty, comfort, past results, positive thinking again. And then when they're not available to us, well, what do I do? Well, I tend to multitask with timeframes that don't exist anymore. Hence, my ability to become present is more difficult. Two, I'm going to do this calculus about like, is it worth it for me to really keep trying and stay engaged? And at times, the answer is going to be no for us if that's the criteria we're using. And then the last part when I go, hey, is it worth it for me to really try to be successful, which will include the possibility of failure, we get very protective of outcomes. And again, protective is just another way of saying of avoidance of the ones we don't want. And now we're multitasking and it's super difficult to perform that way. And I would just say this, when the outcomes are most important to us, having a self-driven level of acceptance that allows us to perform freely is the difference between people that perform under pressure and people that don't among other things but the again the first first domino in the order of operations for being able to execute whatever competency you have all right doc so with acceptance obviously a lot of these young juniors i i get the privilege to work with don't always make the best decisions and you know you use the phrase situational waste you've used the phrase situational acceptance at times where if we're on hole three or four of a tournament obviously not quite a winning or a, a losing situation at the time and you know, with, with 15 holes to play, say we're long par five um, or, a, or a par five with a long carryover water and let's just say 
it's a 250 yard carry in our uh, our max carry with our three woods say 255 and um you know if we can't accept hitting that ball in the water um if we can't accept making a bogey there making a double you know how do we proceed and and you know one of the things i like to talk about with my players is you know sometimes these decisions don't just cost you that you know say we hit it in the water there it doesn't just cost you that one stroke penalty or or doesn't end up costing you the two stroke penalty it it uh it can end up costing you 10 strokes you know if you don't get back on time if if your um you know acceptance levels going forward aren't 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 very good um I mean, it can have some some long lasting effects. It can cost you a month of bad play. So what I ask my kids a lot of times is, if you can't accept the outcome, what's what's the worst that can happen? And and if you can't accept it, then you've got to change your strategy. Am I wrong? Your thoughts? Yeah, there's a difference between strategic avoidance and psychological avoidance. So strategic avoidance is really smart for us. That means playing away from the parts of the golf course that might bring in more. Uh, penalize, you know, essentially bring in strokes lost unnecessarily. Psychological avoidance, on the other hand, is us multitasking with avoidance where we are, because we're unaccepting of potential outcomes, we are going to disrupt our own physical skills because our, we're not in a psychological state that allows for them to be executed as freely. So strategic avoidance is smart, particularly if you're a handicapped golfer the more risk you take on strategic risk on the golf course, also the more likely you are to perhaps accrue penalty strokes, which we know for sure if you're a high handicap golfer, the fastest way to improve your scores is not to make more birdies, it's to avoid bigger numbers, right? So even if you're playing in a tournament or you're playing in a casual round, if you're not willing to eat perhaps some penalty strokes on a shot, then that might suggest a different strategy or perhaps choosing a different shot might be more valuable for you if it's an ongoing thing like well if i hit this thing in the water and i'm not willing to accept it and i carry it into shots going forward that's a psychological avoidance issue um that with more psychological avoidance you'd be able to move past that shot and be able to play freely from that point forward but the bottom line is just because we are willing to accept the outcome of a shot doesn't necessarily mean it's the best shot for us to hit you know another example might be like let's say you're in a bunker and behind the flag is water, and you're a 15 handicap, it might be in your best strategic interest to play away from that flag because it gives you more mar actual strategic margin for error on the golf course to be able to execute a shot that doesn't bring in a, a big number for you. What you're talking about, though, is when we do get into situations where we have to take some strategic risk in order to be competitively successful, then it requires us psychological avoidance where we are willing, perhaps, to hit a ball in a place where it doesn't go, which still gives us the best chance to be successful. And when we do that, again, it's not that we like those outcomes. What it means is we're willing to live with them, in which case then when we play a shot, we are actually focused on playing that shot as well as we can, while also not at the same time trying to please don't hit it here or don't let this happen. All right. So they're not necessarily the same thing all the time. Yeah, so thinking of apps like Decade, and you and I have talked about Scott Fawcett and 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 his stuff. His stuff is awesome, um, you know. So basically, the order would go from from a strategic standpoint: what's the best decision to make in in this current situation, and then and then we have to be on time, and we have to you know make sure our acceptance levels are really high, and then we can talk through it like, hey, look, this is what the book says, this is what the math says, this is what my gut says. Now let's let it fly and see where it ends up, and. You know, versus if we've got a two shot lead or three shot lead with one hole to play, the book might say, "Hey, let's uh, let's take out some more risk, hit a little bit less off the tee. Um, let's let's take the risk out of uh, hitting it out of bounds or hitting the water, and let's hit over here and then hit over there and make our bogey and mm -hmm. and you know win the golf tournament." Yeah, so there's some situational awareness about where you are in a golf tournament and when you when it is best to take on that risk and perhaps not. Like you said, if I'm going into the last five holes of a tournament with a five-stroke lead, I don't need to fire at flags and I don't need to cut corners because it's just taking on risk in a way that is unnecessary where I've got enough of a cushion. It's smarter for me not to. That would be silly. However, if you're going into the last five holes of a golf tournament down five, you are going to need to take on more strategic risk if you're going to give yourself the best chance to win, which means 
you might fall farther back. But if the objective is to try to make up those five shots and have a chance to win the tournament, I'm going to need to take on more risk. What you're also alluding to is, for example, Scott Stuff, and there are a couple of other people doing some advanced math on course strategy. It is super important stuff because it's going to tell you where strokes are more likely to be gained and lost. Like the stuff is brilliant, quite frankly. However, as we've alluded to in this episode, the power of acceptance, psychological acceptance is we remove the first domino that might negatively impact our ability to choose the right target and physically execute our skills. Because as much as decade is awesome, if you're using your dispersions to select your targets from the driving range where you're playing with a really high level of acceptance, your dispersion is going to be different if on the course you're playing with a lower level of acceptance, in which case then the math is technically correct, but you're not using the correct dispersion because when we play with a low level of acceptance, our dispersion is wider and far more inconsistent. There's more variability involved. And so while those systems are super helpful for us, equipment super helpful for us, having a technically sound golf swing and putting stroke, et cetera, super helpful for us, the first line in the order of operations is, am I willing to live with the stuff that I don't want? Because if I'm not, I am creating disruption that is going to negatively impact the efficacy of everything else that I'm using to try to perform well. So I would never tell anyone the key, the only thing that's important to performance is your psychological state, because that's clearly not true either. It wouldn't, we wouldn't buy certain golf clubs or use core strategy if they weren't also valuable. But in order for me to get the most out of them, I have to be willing to live with the things I don't want because that's what allows me to go. When I hit this shot, I'm not disrupting the technical skills. I'm making a choice core strategy wise that is most effective for me. And when I use my equipment, I'm using it in a way that is as close to how it is actually designed to be able to be beneficial. Because you could be the best golfer in the world with the most groove swinged ever, have the best equipment ever, and the most dialed in core strategy. But if I'm playing through anxiety or frustration or essentially whatever version of a low level of acceptance, I'm the one creating the disruption, in which case then those things are far less valuable to me, even if I've invested a ton in them. Yeah, because going back to this idea of your brain's either going to pursue or avoid. And if you know we're trying to avoid the trouble we're worried about while also trying to hit it at a target, it's 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 your brain can't do both freely. Correct. On a psychological level. Now, again, on a strategic level, you can aim away from trouble, which is really smart. The best players in the world often aim away from trouble. Strategic avoidance, super smart. Psychological avoidance, multitasking, which is our brain, as you're alluding to, is designed to have avoidance win out when the choices are avoid or pursue. Yeah. And again, I mean, Many of my players have talked about this. I'm sure yours have too. You know, a lot of times we, we, you know, we've played our best golf just saying, screw it. Let's, you know, let's go. Let's, let's go for it. Let's, let's just go for it and, you know, see what happens. Right. And even though strategically may not be the best decision, but, you know, some of our best golf shots are hit because of that, that lack of fear of where it may go or what we're trying to avoid and, and just saying, Hey, let's, you know, let's, let's, let's let it fly. Let's, you know, let's, let's let it rip. Yeah. One of the, more common examples is let's say for example we play, just played a terrible front nine this is a situation of situational acceptance where the thing that we've been trying to resist which is playing poorly has happened for long enough you know a whole front nine that we can't deny it anymore like it's happened and usually what happens is we wrap our arms around it and we go okay the thing i don't want to happen has happened like i guess it's just gonna be whatever and we basically what happens is we accept the outcome that we have been trying to not accept the whole time and then we play a whole lot more freely on the back nine and we play a whole lot better. Conversely, you have a great front nine. Let's say you're well under your handicap. We can also just as easily go, uh-oh, don't screw this up. And so the outcome we are unwilling to accept is the possibility of getting off to a great start that doesn't also end in a great finish. And then because our level of acceptance decreases, not increases, now we're trying to protect a front nine score with a back nine score. And again, that's just another way of saying I'm multitasking between go shoot a great score and please don't screw up a great score. And again, it's not that it's negative that registers to our brain. We have given it two tasks. One is pursue a good, a great score. And one is don't screw up a good score that I already have going on. And it's just multitasking between pursuit and avoidance. So sometimes the situation opens up acceptance to us. The downside is most of the time when that happens, 
it requires us playing poorly for long enough that we accept poor outcomes. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing other than the fact that you're usually out of it by then in terms of contention or a cut line or being able to shoot a really good score that day. So essentially, we're trading our scorecard for the ability to play freely in a way that isn't necessarily required. Yeah, expectations go down now. We stay on time more too because now we're not worried about all that stuff in the future. And you know, now we just let go and play. And I, you know, I keep saying this. I feel yeah. like you've come up with this system. And I know system isn't always the best word to use, but like every round of golf, my players play. If they struggle or if even if they play well, I'm always asking the three questions, the three middle game questions. Or how are you with on time? Any future, any past thoughts? If so, why? How is your acceptance levels? You know, did you struggle after you missed a couple of little putts with putting? Did your acceptance level goes da- go, go down? You know, you made double and and missed it left on on the fifth hole. And were you a little worried about you know the right trees or worried about you know you know hitting a hitting just hitting a bad shot or how was your game plan? Was it precise enough? And, um, and it's just been so refreshing for me now yeah. because it's such a different way to look at it than just saying, you know, were you confident? Were you relaxed? Were you calm? Did you believe in yourself? You know, and and it's just it's just helped me have much better communication with my with my better players and really really all my players um, after rounds, before rounds, um, right. just a way to talk to them about their their psychology, their middle game, and so. As I've said a ton, if you haven't bought the book, go buy the book. It's it's phenomenal. It's sold out. You know, it's all over everywhere. Books are sold, and and again, Doc, I just thank you for um, for bringing this stuff to light um, because it's it's again, it's such a different way to look at our psychology and and how our at least in the golfing world, it's so different and it's never been really talked about. And so I um, I just know it's it's helped me a ton. It's helping all my players. It's going to help all my future players and. And I know it's going to help all you guys listening at home. Yeah, and and those questions you're asking are so valuable because, again, they're getting to the mechanistic level of what's impacting your performance in the order of operations that it plays out. So if you just went to the golf swing without addressing, well, was I even grounded and present on the shots that I played and what was my level of acceptance? And did I have the correct strategic decision involved? Again, you're missing a bunch of dominoes in the domino effect and you're jumping ahead to you might be addressing the source or you might not. But until we've kind of clarified that, it's much more difficult for us to be able to identify what is actually impacting our performance the most. And so that's why it's really valuable for anybody trying to get better because again, you're using it in the order that it actually plays out when we're performing rather than just jumping to I didn't hit it very well. Yeah, I like to tell my students too, I'm like, look, if 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 you're locked in with on time, acceptance levels high, game plan, strategy, target, no distractions, all that stuff's good, and you don't perform at your best, then blame me. That's my fault. You know, we'll we'll work on the mechanical stuff in the lab. We'll go into the technique and, and go into the, all that stuff as we need to. But it has to start with the three the three main things. It has to start with acceptance levels. It has to start with being on time. Your game plan or, or being on target has to be has your intention has to be strong or has to be solid enough. If you weren't where you needed to be, then that's on you to get through it and keep working on it and and keep figuring it out. I like you know my players to be able to go through their checklist and say, "How'd we do? How'd we do? You know, how'd we do? You know, oh, it was a golf swing issue today. I was just a little bit off, or we hit a few right ones today, and I was locked in mentally. I was where I needed to be, but but uh, you know, but swing was a little bit off. And I'm like, okay, cool. And you know, I also urge parents, especially good players, like you just don't know what your kid was thinking when you're when they're over a golf shot or after they hit a golf shot. And and you say it all the time. You don't like to guess. I'm the same way. I don't I don't like to guess. And I've got a bunch of parents that say, Oh, I, I know they weren't committed to it. I'm like, you have no idea, like no idea what your parent what your players were thinking. And as your players get better, you've you've got to learn to trust them. You've got to ask them the questions and you've got to trust what they say because it it could have been a bad lie or they were trying to do something a little extra with it and they just hit a bad shot and like you you just don't know and so again i i thank you for bringing this stuff out because if if you guys want to get better you have to ask yourself these questions after each round after each shot you know were you on time how was your acceptance was your strategy good enough and if it if it wasn't start there before you start diagnosing and 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 changing golf swings yeah for sure the other thing about that is sometimes we might play with a high enough level of or our confidence is stable enough we might say meaning i'm grounded and i'm accepting and i did have a sound core strategy and we find out oh man that wasn't very good that is by far the preferred option 
a preferred challenge to have because then you can go work on your technical skills knowing that that is the source of what's keeping you from performing well. So first of all, it's more objective and it's more actionable. When it's us causing the disruption to our own skills, we have to cross that off first because otherwise we're going and practicing something. Like you said, I don't know if it's a technical issue really or if it's because the technique was disrupted because of me. So even though playing really freely and not getting the results we want or executing as well as we want kind of sucks sometimes, that is by far the preferred option than getting in your own way because it is a shorter correction to be able to make. Yep, love that. You know, and identifying the real problem, making sure we understand the real issue for the bad shot or the bad results. And, you know, sometimes, like you said, sometimes it's our own skill level and we don't we don't want to admit that sometimes, but it's it's sometimes the truth. Sometimes we find out that our skill sets or our strategies just quite aren't good enough. Or perhaps you might find out that your equipment isn't enough, but we don't actually know that objectively without eliminating our own self-imposed interference. All right, guys, at GBTS podcast on Instagram, at BTS underscore mindset on Twitter, Chase Cooper Golf uh, on Instagram. Give us a follow, ask us questions. Um, we'll do some Instagram lives coming up. Um, our next four or five pods are, are pretty scripted, and then we'll add some guests and um, throw in a bit more of what you guys are into, what you guys are looking for. Doc, anything else to add and uh, take us home? I think that was plenty for people to marinate on this week, so we'll let them sit in that, and then next week we'll talk about how to be on time more often. Awesome. Thanks, guys. See you guys. Thank you.